Welcome to Saltgrass, a show about how local communities can engage with the climate crisis at a grassroots level. My name is Ellie Hanley. This is a bit of a bonus episode, and it's following on from the last episode about Connecting Country. Connecting Country is a not-for-profit community group that works to increase, enhance and restore biodiversity across Mount Alexander region of central Victoria in Australia. In the last episode with Bonnie and Hadley, I shared some excerpts from the audio from this event that I'll be sharing with you today. So now you're going to hear the full audio from that event. It was held at a local church hall and was very well attended with over 70 people coming along and it was called Revegetation Success in a Changing Climate. It was aimed specifically for people who are asking questions about how to plant now so that our environment has the best chance to survive through climate change. The event featured presentations from Sasha Jelinek from the University of Melbourne and Melbourne Water, Ollie Murray, who's a project manager at JARA, and Tess Grease from the North Central Catchment Management Authority, or the NCCMA. And CMAs, for those who may not be aware, are the water catchment authorities. So basically it's a government organisation and they manage all of the waterways and all of the issues that arise from water catchment. There's a lot of local knowledge and references that are mentioned in this audio and I haven't stopped to explain it all but I hope that no matter where you're listening from you can make sense of it through context. Once the three speakers had some time talking about what they were there to talk about to the room there was a Q&A session and none of the questions were caught on mic but the answers were. So I'll come back later and try and give a sense of what the questions asked were as I feel it's needed. So without any more words from me, here is Ivan Carter. He's the engagement coordinator at Connecting Country and he was the MC for the night. I'll begin with acknowledging the traditional owners of the country we are on today, of being the Jar Jar Rawang people. And I'd like to pay our respects to the elders past, present and emerging and thank them for their sustainable land management over tens of thousands of years. And also the assets that we do have left and their incredible connection to country, which sovereignty was never ceded. Tonight we have three amazing presenters from different angles of the revegetation world. Uh, First we've got uh, Sasha from the University of Melbourne and Melbourne Water, and then we'll hand over to Ollie from Jara, and then we've got Tess from the North Central Catchment Management Authority. So we're going to go through those uh, one by one. They're going to give a presentation. Uh, and a talk. We'll save the questions uh, for the end where we're going to do a Q&A panel. So we're going to set up some chairs here. So if you do have any questions uh, at any stage, just save them to the end and we're going to set up a a bit of a panel and we can throw some questions at our uh, panellists and then we'll do some thank yous and wrap up. A quick bit about Connecting Country. So if you don't know Connecting Country, we're a small community organisation, a not-for-profit uh, that has four sort of branches, if you like, that we do. So we support Landcare, which Hadley Cole is our uh, Landcare facilitator. We do a landscape restoration, which uh, Bonnie Humphreys at the back is the coordinator for that. So that's on ground works and uh, revegetation from a, a variety of grants and funding sources. We do community engagement, which is things like this, events and education and information, websites and socials, which is myself I do that and we've also do a monitoring program so 
We have Jess Launton, who's not here tonight, but Jess coordinates our monitoring, which has been going for over a decade now. So we've got a very good set of data there that we've been using for a variety of projects. Uh, a bit about tonight's event. So this is part of a larger project for us called Future Proof Our Forests. So we're lucky enough to get some funding through the Ross Trust, which has enabled us to set up two climate future plots in this region. So yeah, they've been set up as a research site or research plots where we planted two different species across two different sort of landscapes. And we've sourced the seeds in those plots from a variety of climatic regions. And I won't go into too much detail about that, but if you do want some more information, you can have a chat with Bonnie at the end or contact us. But yeah, so we do need to thank the Ross Trust for the funding. And as part of that, we're also able to put on this event tonight. So they've funded the event, which has been fantastic. So we've got a Silver Banksia site just north of Kyneton and a Sweet Basaria site just around Castlemaine. And if you do want to get involved further with Connecting Country, we've got an e-news letter. We're open to new members. It's a free membership. There's some information at the back. And of course, we've got videos and our social media and so on. So that's it for me. I will hand over to Sasha now, who is going to give a bit of a talk. I'll just introduce Sasha before he gets up. So Sasha is a research fellow with the University of Melbourne, and he's an ecologist as well with Melbourne Water. His work uh, focuses on uh, restoration activities and planning to make these, these activities more resilient. And he grew up on a small beef farm in northeast Victoria. He's travelled widely across Australia. And one of his first jobs was breeding frogs in tropical North Queensland. So, Sasha, welcome. And I'll hand over to you. Cheers. That was catching breeding frogs, not actually breeding frogs. Cool. Thanks very much. And thanks for inviting me. As Owen said, I'm from the University of Melbourne and also Melbourne Water. I work for both. And I've been doing quite a bit of work over the years on climate change and revegetation. And I have had some hand in writing the Climate Future Plots guidelines, which some of you might know. So I'm just going to give you a bit of an overview about climate change tonight to start off with. What the projections are for Victoria and also how we can better adapt our revegetation in the future for that climate change. I'm going to talk a little bit about choosing the right species, choosing the right provenances, a little bit about genetics and then give you a few case studies and say how important monitoring is. So. As we all know, the climate is projected to get hotter and drier for us down here. And although there's 40 different climate models which project what the climate's going to do, generally they're all in agreement that it is going to get hotter and drier. And we're already seeing that. It's not something in the future, it's happening now. This July was the hottest on record and this year is meant to be the hottest on record. Climate change is already happening. So I'm going to talk a little bit about representative concentration pathways which are 
There's a number of different ones, but the main ones which people talk about are RCP 4.5, which is the best case scenario, uh, and RCP 8.5, which is, well, was known as the worst case scenario, but is looking more likely to be the trajectory that we're on. So if we stop emitting, then the temperature will can increase till about now 2100 and then it'll level out because there's already enough in the atmosphere that it's projected to increase even if we stop right now. If we don't stop then that's where that red area is and we don't really know what is likely to happen in that scenario. But we can pretty safely say that temperatures will increase. Rainfall is a bit more difficult to predict, but overall they're likely to decrease. In Victoria, increase in rainfall events over the summer months, decrease in the winter months, increased fire danger, less frost days, less snow. So overall it's not a great picture and we but we need to adapt to this we need to look at what we, what we can do to change the revegetation that we're doing and how we can make it more effective in the future this has come off a website called climate change in australia and it's a csro projection and allows you to look at where you are and what your climate is going to look like in the future so the closest I could get to here was Bendigo. But you can see by 2050, our temperature and rainfall is meant to look a bit more like Wagga Wagga, Kyabram, or Bordertown in South Australia. And that's looking at increase in temperatures and also a decrease of around 5% in rainfall. By 2090, the rainfall and temperature is more likely to be somewhere like Forbes up in New South Wales. So again, quite a bit drier and quite a bit hotter. So a decrease in rainfall by about 12%. And as I said, we're already seeing these changes in the climate and how it's affected the natural environment. So this is in Tassie, the Menasada gum. In 1987 I had a really good strong population but in 2000 that population has really crashed and they think largely it's due to climate change. It's really hard to pinpoint things directly on climate change because usually it's a cumulative impact of say insects attacks and cattle grazing under the trees and increasing the phosphates but usually it's a cumulative impact and climate change just pushes things over the edge. We're also seeing a loss in agricultural productivity by about 27% related to climate and an increase in extreme weather events. We've already seen the floods. We're going into our Nino year. They're projecting that we're going to see hotter and drier years for the next couple of years ahead. So how does this influence the natural environment? How does this influence our plants and animals? Well, we're seeing some dieback happening in Western Australia and New South Wales. 
We're seeing a decline in alpine areas, alpine meadows, because generally they can't get any higher than they already are. And this is also related to a decline in the alpine fauna, so things like bogong moths and uh, mountain pygmy possums. And we're also seeing movement north of mammals and birds up into the wet tropics. And we're even seeing morphology changes, so changes in the size of birds and what they're feeding on. So we're seeing a reduction in size, so they're not that impacted by hotter and drier events. And from a restoration space, we're likely to see some species not being able to germinate, so things like Bessaria, which need frosts to germinate, may not be able to in some areas. We're likely to see a decline in winter and spring rainfall, and this is when we do all our planting usually. So if we see a decline in rainfall in winter and spring, that's going to make it a lot harder for us to establish plants in revegetation, which means we might need to change when we do our plantings. And as I said, extreme weather. And that's really what the literature is saying, the science is saying that it's not so much the climate changing, but it's more the extreme weather events. So the really hot days or the extended dry periods that really knock the plants that we put in the ground out. High temperatures and low rainfall really affect the plants that we're planting. And it also depends on the soil type. So if you plant in really sandy soils, usually the plants don't do so well. Guarding might increase the survival of some plants, depending where you are, and also, as I said, and we'll talk about more about it in the talk, if you change the provenances, so get genetics from hotter and drier climates, move them to the area of planting, maybe that will also boost the resilience of your plants. So what can we do? How can we make our revegetation more resilient? As I said, we might need to alter the timing of our planting and when we do it. So we might need to plant earlier or later in the season, depending on when we think those rainfall events are likely to happen. And we may think, well, we know that there's going to be a drought coming up for the next year. Maybe we won't plant at all that year because the chance of the plants that we put in the ground surviving is pretty low. We might need to think about watering in our plants and that might be viable for small plantings close to water sources but generally it's not that viable if you're doing large agricultural plantings for example or direct seeding. Long stem tube stock is also a suggested way of doing things so plants which are generally older have a deeper rootstock and hopefully we'll be able to access water better than your normal tube stock. Again, that hasn't really been tested that much to my knowledge. We might want to cha change the species that we plant. We might see that some species are surviving a lot better than other ones and we move towards those. And what I'm going to talk more about is increasing the genetic diversity of species and also altering the provenance of, of where we get the plants from. So 
Historically, we've said local is best, isn't it? We'll just use all our local seed because that's what's best adapted for the environment, that's what's best adapted for this area. And we know that the animals really do well survive in these habitats. But the landscape's changed. There's a lot of habitat fragmentation now. Animals and plants can't move and disperse how they used to because of the agricultural matrix and urban areas. There's generally reduced genetic diversity, especially for things like banksias. There's usually just pockets of them and their genetics are really reduced. And there's also altered environmental processes. So agriculture has put a lot of phosphates on the ground and it's not the same environment that it was. So it's really hard to try and restore into these areas when they've been so drastically changed. And climate change is another one of these drivers. And as I said, it's usually a cumulative impact. It's not just one thing which affects the survival of the plants. We know from some modelling that's been done that some species may not be able to survive so well into the future. So this is ironbark, a eucalyptus tricarpa, and at present it's got a really wide range. But up in the north, north of Melbourne, that's where it's more the arid adapted region for it. That's where it's still hanging on, but they're predicting that by 2070, these arid adapted populations might not be able to hang on and they'll actually drop out from that northern area, north of Melbourne. And even the areas along the coast might be becoming a bit hard for it to survive in. So that's the bad news. <laughs> But we might be able to boost the genetics and re the resilience of these plants by bringing in seed from hotter and drier climates. So, for example, forbs in this case, if we're planting here, and other areas like wagga, we might want to bring in seeds from those areas to try and boost the gen genetics of our population. And we also need to make sure that the local stock we're getting are really already genetically diverse. Species have what's known as plasticity. They have an ability to adapt to an environment. And some species like white gum, for example, managam, are really able to have a lot of plasticity and are generally able to adapt to a whole load of different environments. That's why you see them all the way down Victoria and all the way up to northern New South Wales. But, and so this is an example from Jeebson in Tasmania. So this is the same species, blue gum, eucalyptus globulus, and it's got different forms. Down the coast, it's really small. It's quite stunted, three metres tall. But in Jeebson, up in the, more in the hills area, they get really tall. So this is just showing that species can adapt to the different environment and that all comes down to genetics. And this is another example of snow gum and they looked at the root ball, so the lignotuber size, and they found that depending on where you were and the temperature of that area, 
that lignin tuber would start to get bigger so I could hold more water so the plant could survive. So we should never doubt that plants have a really good ability to adapt to the natural environment and sometimes we may not give them enough credit for that. And this is another um, example of a species of crest that depending on the environment that it's in has really different growth padding patterns. So this is where climate adapted provenancing comes in and as I said that's bring the seed from hot and dry climates and also wetter climates because although it's projected to get hotter and drier we've already seen that we will have years of flooding so we've also get, got to have the species which are adapted to cooler wetter conditions. So we've got to adapt and increase the provenances in a number of directions both hot and dry and wetter and cooler. And this is where usually we've gone, as I said, collecting local seed, but the science is suggesting that maybe we need to focus more on this climate-adapted composite seed, where we get some seed locally, but we also get some seed from further afield. And there's a very basic rule of thumb called 70-20-10, and that's you get 70% of your seed from the local population because you really want to maintain those local genetics. You get 20% of your seed from 2030, 2050 climate analogues and you get 10% of your seed from further afield, so in this case Forbes. And this is what's been suggested and people are testing this and finding that Generally, it's a fairly good rule of thumb. There's been a lot of research done in Tassie, mostly on eucalypts, but, and it's really great that this group is putting in climates plots themselves. But yeah, what we really need is more science behind this so we can really know what's going to happen in the future. We can model all we like, but models aren't as good as field trials. So some species are a lot more diverse and well distributed, so it's generally easier to get seed. And some species are a lot more localised and it's going to be really hard to get seed for those species. But generally speaking, getting seed is the hardest bit in all of this. It's one of the biggest barriers that we face at the moment is that there is no connections really made to nurseries up in New South Wales and nurseries in Victoria and there's nothing set up to my knowledge where nurseries can talk to one another and swap seed and that sort of thing. I mean really it's a huge hole and something that it would be great the government took a lead on because that's what needs to happen. I mean, there is a great resource in the Royal Botanic Gardens of Sydney. They have a website called Restore and Renew, and that tells you for what, depending on the plant you want to plant and where you are, it tells you where to get your seed from. Still doesn't direct you to the nurseries exactly, but it takes that first step of saying, okay, you've got this species, you can look in this area to get the seed. And that's going from more of a genetic angle, because they've done a lot of genetic testing of certain species. 
but it's also a slightly provenancing angle as well. So there's that resource which we're hoping will be brought down to Victoria soon. But other than that, there's yeah nothing set up for swapping seed easily. That's what the science is saying. Again, we've got to give plants credit for their ability to adapt. So at the end of the day, we don't really know. But that's what we're suspecting is happening already and will continue to happen, that species will start to drop out because they can't adapt quick enough to the climate. There's risks as in we don't know, like the food resources from a species up north might, uh, might not produce the same food resources as down here. So bull, bull oak might be an example where red-tailed black cockatoos really require that resource to survive. If you start bringing bull oak from other areas, it may not produce the same amount of seed, so it won't have the same food resources. But we don't know. But there are definitely risks. It's not a risk-free option. Yeah, so just so we're making sure that we're looking at all potential future climates, so we're likely to get cooler and wetter years, and that's where bringing in some genetics. So you might actually, rather than 70, 20, 10, you might actually want 60, 20, 10, 10, where 60% is local, 20% is from that higher, slightly hotter and drier, 10% is from that really hot and dry area, and the, that other 10% is from a wetter and dry, wetter and cooler climate. So that's, yeah, that's probably a more sensible way of doing it really. This is some other modelling which was done. Models are only as good as the data which goes into them. So always treat models with a fair bit of care and don't take the word that that's what's going to happen. But this is some modelling which was done for silver um, acacia deobata. And it's basically showing that in the that's for the whole of southeastern Australia. It's really likely to decline by 2070, 2090. This is a greater Melbourne region, and you can see these are two different models. That's what's called a species distribution model, which is the usual models that you see. This is called TACA or mechanistic modeling, which is has a lot more information inputs put into it. But basically both models are showing the same thing in that the distribution of silver bottle currently is really likely decline to decline in the future. And that's, those two maps are showing by how much. So that model is predicting that there's gonna be a huge shift in silver wattle in the Melbourne water region by 2070. And so it's not, there's not only genetics we need to think about though, it also depends where we're planting in the landscape and what we're planting for. So generally we're planting revegetation because we want that revegetation to survive and grow in the future. 
But we also need to realise that the pollination, the genetics of what we plant is likely to influence the surrounding forest. So if you're planting an area right next to a national park, there's going to be crossover between what you plant and the genetics in the national park, which is probably a good thing. If you're planting climate-adjusted plants, then you might actually be boosting the resilience of the national park population, for example. Where also, if you're up the top of a stream and um, the seed is likely to go downstream and grow somewhere else. So we're likely to genetically mix our populations wherever we plant. And there's a high degree of possibility that we've been doing climate plot planting already because generally nurseries aren't too sure where their seeds have come from. So we might actually be planting seeds from hotter and drier climates already and not realise it. Apologies for any nurseries in here which do keep good records of where their plants come from. And pollination is also another big thing. So insects and birds can usually pollinate up to like a kilometre to a couple of hundred kilometres away for birds. Insects usually it's within about a kilometre. So where we plant is likely to be dispersed by something. And historically we've planted EVCs, ecological vegetation classes in Victoria. That's what a lot of the guidelines suggest. But EVC mapping is pretty inaccurate generally and especially for wetland areas. And the EVCs we have now are likely to be different to the ones we have in the future. So it's best to look at the species you have around you and try and plant those sort of species. But we may also need to think about non-native species. And that's usually a big no-no conversation but it might be something we need to consider. So usually non-native species are a lot easier to get hold of than native species, unfortunately. And I don't necessarily mean non-native species from other countries, I mean non-native species from this part of Victoria, for example. So getting a type of wattle from South Australia might, might fall into the category of a non-native species in this area. They might provide similar functions to the natives that we plant and they might survive and grow better. And, but equally, they might become invasive. They may not provide the same food or habitat resources to our native species and it might bring about an ecosystem change that we really don't want. So there needs to be a lot of caution taken not only moving genetics around, but especially moving species around. So things to consider when you're planting. What are the goals of your revegetation? Why are you doing it? What are the species and provenances you need and can you actually get the seed for it? Is there fencing guarding needs to be done? 
I know around the Melbourne water area we're having huge problems with deer. So what are the pest animals in the area and is that a, going to affect your planting? And they're a huge problem in Tassie as well. What's the topography like? What site preparation needs to be done? What weeds, pest animals are there? Who will manage the site in the future? And for how long do you want this planting to last for the next 20 or 30 years? And are you going to monitor it and keep an eye on it? So this is an example of quite close by, Nardo Hills, a planting that Bush Heritage did a few years ago. And they chose two species of eucalypt from different climate analogues. So current, 2050, 2090, well, two from 2090. And this was their reasoning for it. Basically, they wanted to cross, have as much crosses and as much genetic diversity in those population of ukes as they could because they were seeing a lot of die-off in Nardo Hills and they really wanted to boost that population. So this planting is, well, these plants are growing now, it's all done. So it'll be really interesting to see in the future how these plantings go. And this is a diagram from the Climate Future Plots, the book I talked about at the start, and that really pushes that you need to have a clear goal, you need to understand what the climate's going to be like, you need to have an understanding of the area you're planting and why, you need to choose the right species and choose the right prominences that you want to plant, and you need to have a good design and site layout and most importantly, or not most importantly, but really importantly, you need to monitor it to see how it grows and develops over time. So monitoring is vital. It provides you with information on survival. If you're measuring how plants are growing, their growth, and also ideally you can monitor what plants are, what animals are using them. So. There's usually lots of birdos in the community. Get people to go out and look at the birds, see what's going on. And you can even turn these small plantings into seed production areas. So if you're planting a small area in a farmland which has, been, which has multiple different provenances or genetics, you can use that seed in the future for other revegetation projects. And if you want to monitor it and monitor it properly, there's a number of different ways you can do it, and it just depends how complex you want to get. So there's some really complex ways of monitoring the different species within different provenances, or you can just monitor your local species and are they doing better than the species from other provenances. So a few take-home messages. The climate's already changing, it's already here, we're already seeing things changing and plants and animals needing to adapt. Revegetation, it's going to be affected by climate change, so we need to think about the genetic plasticity of the plants that we're putting in the ground and also the provenances.
problem thing isn't that easy, especially getting the seed that we want to get and the species. And we really need to consider putting in things like seed production areas. So if we're planting in the future, we know we can get the seed for the areas that we want to plant in. And monitoring is really important. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, Sasha. That was an excellent presentation. I think it's given us all a little bit of hope and a little bit of clarity as well. And just a bit of background on this event. This did come about through Hadley and through Bonnie because they were getting a lot of questions from, from community groups and land care and even government bodies about you know, how are we going to plan our revegetation for the future, the climate change is a bit scary, what can we do, what will give us better success I think. So I think it was great Sasha that you covered things to do and some resources and places to go and even just the 70-20-10 rule I think is a good thing to have you know in terms of planning. Next up we have Ollie from Jara. Just a little bit about Ollie. He's had the privilege of working for Jara for the last 18 months. He's been developing their climate change strategy which is be exciting to hear about as well as their forest gardening strategy. Um, and before Jara, he worked at environmental justice as well, as well as climate adaption and sustainability development. And he's been working and volunteering on climate NGO sector for the last 10 years. So welcome, Ollie. I'll hand over to you now. I'd also like to acknowledge any First Nations people who are here today. I'm not a Jara person, but I do have the privilege of working for the Jajawurrung Clans Aboriginal Corporation. Thanks so much for having me. Really appreciate the opportunity to talk about our climate change work at Jara. So we recently launched this strategy. It is available on our website if anyone's interested in looking at it afterwards. So we launched it at the end of May and we're really excited about yeah, the opportunities that come through the strategy, not just for Jara, but for the broader community. So just some quick terminology for you all that aren't familiar, many of you will be, but so Jara refers to the traditional owners of Central Victoria, but when it's in caps, that refers also to the corporation where I work. And Jandak is, is the word in Jara language for, for Jajawurrung, for, for country of this area. And, and the map on the, on the left is Jara country. So down south around Creswick, Dalesford, Woodend, all the way up north to Bort and Donald to the sort of west and all of the sort of central Victoria goldfields region as well. So this is our climate change strategy. And really why Jara prioritised this piece of work is that many Jara elders and knowledge holders who work in the corporation or from the community really are concerned about what climate change means for their health and their community, but also for the health of country. And so it's been a priority for several years now to really make sure that Jara is leading on climate action in the region, but also offering deep knowledge about what country needs and when it needs it, what kinds of plants should be planted in the, in the right places at the right time. And so how I sort of see our Jara's work on climate change is a really 
exciting thing because, you know, as Sasha outlined, we're in a climate crisis. It's pretty overwhelming and, and scary, and it's going to continue to be so. But since working at Jara, I've become incredibly hopeful for the future because I can see that when traditional owners are leading in this space, we can get better outcomes for everyone. And so since working with, with many Jara community members, elders, leaders, I've felt, yeah, just amazed at the generosity that Jara have to open their hand for others to walk on this path for their own self-determination, but to address some of these grand challenges like climate change. And that opportunity through our strategy as well is really clear that we want to work with others and we really acknowledge the, the amazing work that many of you do, whether it's with Landcare or, or other groups, because JARA acknowledges that the, the challenges are so great that they can't do it all alone. They need to have the support of others. So the vision of, of JARA's approach to climate change, it's a bit more broader than just revegetation, which we're obviously talking about tonight, and I'll sort of focus in on the aspects that are relevant. But really, it's a holistic approach to climate change. So it brings together things that you might consider mitigation around renewable energy, carbon sequestration, and the things around adaptation as well. So reducing bushfire risk or reducing flood risk through more nature-based approaches. And it really brings that holistic approach to addressing climate change. And that's really the JARA way. But sort of, you know, you guys or this group connecting country is great because it, it talks about that connection of people with nature or country. And that's a really well-established idea and philosophy been around for a long time obviously but what we do through this strategy is bring in a third element of climate and so really what JARA's understanding of climate change is is that JARA have been separated from the climate and and country and that's why we've ended up with catastrophic climate change is that traditional owners this is broader than just JARA but from JARA's perspective is that that's that disconnection from country and the climate is is the reason why we have the problem and so the solution in its simplest form is that we acknowledge that we are part of nature, we are part of the climate, we are part of country and that's sort of a, a key element within the vision but also the broader strategy that we need to provide ways for JARA as the traditional owners but for everyone to get back out on country um, and be connected to, to the climate as well. So I won't touch on this in detail, it's not the best high-resolution high image, but JARA's sort of bible of all the work that the corporation does is the Del Cunha JAR country plan, which some of you may know about or have seen before. But basically it was a sort of long-term 20-year plan for JARA community. They came together in 2013 around and sort of formed these nine broad goals that they viewed as the sort of key aspirations for, for healing country and healing people. Uh, and self-determination. So the strategy touches on this because it's really key part of JARA's work, but climate change impacts each of the goals that are outlined in that plan. But there's also really great opportunities through various areas, whether we talk about waterways or we talk about joint manage of the parks and reserves that JARA jointly manages with Parks Victoria and the state to address climate change or reduce climate impacts. So there's a lot of opportunities, even though there's, there's a lot of challenges as well. So you might not be able to see it with on, in the small sort of form, but I encourage you to have a look at the, the online version. 
and we can get you some hard copies that you can share through the group as well. But this is kind of JARA's climate change policy framework. And so it really demonstrates the holistic nature of it. So I'll talk you through it. But essentially how JARA talk about climate is that everything, or, and, and more broader than climate, is that everything's connected through spirit or in the JARA word murun. And so we go around the sort of wheel up the top we is the word for fire, Jara is people, as I said, Galka is trees and forests, Jandak is country, Wuda Wuda means sky country, and Gadjan is water. So each of these areas, similar to the country plan goals, are impacted by climate change, but offer tremendous opportunities to be reducing climate risk, building resilience, and, and storing carbon in the landscape as well. So all of those are kind of surrounded by the plants and animals and when I was developing this strategy with our community with our JARA elders and knowledge holders that was a really key part of our approach to climate change that we can't leave out the animals and plants and I'll go into that in a bit more detail later and all of those are then used as seasonal indicators to understand already how climate change is impacting the different species dif distributions, germination, flowering of plants the movement of different animals across the landscape. And all of that is kind of bound up in Jara lore or the dreaming story culture of the Jaja Wurrung. So I'll skip over this. So essentially, oh, hang on, the strategy sort of works through each of these areas of the, the policy framework, fire, water, country, so on. And in each of those areas, we have a range of sort of strategic objectives and goals and activities that fit under that. And part of the, the kind of interesting thing coming into JARA, everyone was talking about, let's develop this climate change strategy or policy so that we can start doing stuff on climate. But actually it was pretty, it was, yeah, pretty soon into my work at JARA that it was obvious that JARA was already doing so much on climate. Um, and so really what this strategy does is it brings together a range of other work that's been um, happening in this part of the world, being led by JARA for, for many years now. So in the fire so, sort of section, so each of these slides that I'll show has quotes from our Wataka or Jaja Wurrung sort of a knowledge advisory group that developed the strategy. And so I'll read them out for those that can't read from the back. So, if seasons are changing, some of the plants are changing, so the fire will have to change. This one's a really important one when we talk about revegetation, because for Jara, bringing back cultural fire to country is really important for health of country, health of plants, health of landscapes, but also health of people. But acknowledging, and I think this is really clear in the strategy that Jara have a really nuanced understanding of how climate change is impacting these things already, and that. Jara are the ones that have been the most adaptive managers for thousands of generations. From a water one, so I'll read this one. It's about the things you can't see with your eyes too. When you do water testing, that's all these good, there's all these good and bad bugs in the water. If we can start to see these good organisms in the water, it's a positive thing. So in our Gadgen team and, and the work they do, it's really about restoring waterways, wetlands. We know that wetlands store a lot of carbon, so reducing emissions, but also reduce the risk of major floods and storms by absorbing that water in the landscape. So they're really important from both aspects of climate change. Jandak or country. So Jandak should be the basis upon which 
the other parts of the strategy come together. It's important to remember Bunjil's creation story. Country, country was formed first, and water and forests come after, came afterwards. So in our sort of JANDAC or country section of the strategy, we really talk about a range of areas, including things like renewable energy, but also acknowledging that 90% of Jara country is on, in, on, under sort of private land ownership or land tenure, and that Jara acknowledges that we need to work with private landholders, with groups like Landcare and others, to start to heal all country. And it's not just focused on the parks or the reserves where the government have legal obligations to work with Jara or other traditional owners. Galka or trees and forests. So with these huge storms, you got a lot more trees falling. When you get too much water, they get very unstable and it uproots in. You can also say that when there's drought, they get too dry and they drop their limbs. So in this section of the strategy, we really talk about the need for Jara to be back in the landscape, actively managing country, and that there's a clear focus on the, the reason why we have these catastrophic fires, catastrophic floods, is because Jara land management or biocultural management practices have been removed from country. And so, you know, I was in a meeting today with our cultural burn team and really acknowledging that, and, and they've, they've got 30 burn plans for the next season already, some of them in, in Castlemaine region or, um, as well is that bringing back fire can reduce those, the risk of catastrophe fires, but also encourage and, and build that biodiversity. And really key from some of the research we've been working in with various research partners is that in terms of climate resilience, a forest or a landscape will be healthier if, it's, if there's more biodiversity in it. So when we're talking about planting, whether it's on public land or private land, that bringing back that diversity with species is, is really key. And for Jara, it's about the right plants at the right time in the right place. So Jara or people, Jara needs to be in the landscape. I've just touched on this. Ecosystems work in symbiotic ways. You take one thing out, humans, animals, plants, that's when you see collapse of ecosystems. And that is what we're seeing at a global level. You just look at the news in Europe. This is what has happened and has led to the problems we're facing now. And Jara really cognizant and, and proud and able to be leading in this space and, and that's what Jara asks the, the rest of us to, to kind of walk with Jara on, on this journey and, and follow that leadership. So sky country, the sun is a big charging station so we can build solar farms on country. As I mentioned earlier, a really key part of our knowledge advisory group which came up was you can't leave out any of these animal groups, whether it's the insects or the bees, the butterflies, microorganisms down to the bacteria. From Jara's perspective, each of those different groups of, of fauna or whatever you want to call them are equally important and that we need those to be healthy for Jara to be healthy and for country to be healthy and in turn for the climate to be healthy. We need animals. There's no animals on Jara country emus, quolls, etc. And that's acknowledging that because of colonisation and fragmentation of land and, and agricultural expansion, which Sasha talked about a bit, we have lost some of the keystone species on Jara country, which are really important culturally, such as dingo um, and emus as well. The seasons are changing. Animals have to work it out, but they'll adapt quicker than us. And I think that touches on, Sasha talked about, you know, we have to trust plants can be more resilient and can adapt 
And that's what Jara kept saying to me when community members kept saying to me when we were talking about climate change is that things will adapt as well. And it's not to say that we shouldn't be concerned, we should be, but we also have to, yeah, support and, and acknowledge that, that as well. So plants with the grasses and the flowers, you should see a rainbow of colour. That's when you know it's healthy because you've got a good mixture of plant variations in there. So I'll just touch on, I've, I've sort of mentioned this before, but a lot of our work in implementing this climate change strategy is to be collaborating with others. We do work internally across JAR as a big organisation and growing with working within the parks and reserves around building landscape resilience, whether it's through planting, we're developing projects to look at protecting cultural heritage from disasters like storms, floods, catastrophic fires, and working as well to reduce the corporation's own emissions. And that was a really key thing from JARA in our knowledge advisory group is that JARA want to be leading as well in terms of reducing our emissions. And then the other collaboration of externally, so working with partners, we're looking at setting up with, with folks at Wood for Good, who some of you probably know, some regenerative forestry projects that can really heal country, but also you know, have benefit in storing more carbon in the landscape, increasing biodiversity, but also enabling JARA to practice landscape management, including bringing back cultural fire to the landscape and a range of other things. But I think a key one for us in terms of community groups is that we, as I said earlier, we really acknowledge the great leadership that many of you show and have shown for, for a long time. And JARA wants to work in and where we can, acknowledging capacity constraints sometimes that, yeah, we want to walk with others on that sort of journey as well. So we're really keen to work with, with yourselves on whether it's planting projects or, or trialling different things. And, and how we can bring that, this holistic kind of philosophy of, of responding to climate change into the work that others do as well. So anyway, this is our strategy. We might get a link shared around afterwards on our website, but yeah, thanks so much for having me tonight. Cheers. Thanks very much for that, Ollie. That was wonderful. It was amazing how much you were able to cover in such a short period of time. And I think on a positive note, it is great that various uh, government organisations and, and bodies are starting to pick up on some of this wisdom and starting to implement you know, some of the burning regimes as well because there's so much knowledge out there you know, from a very long period of time. So thank you. Next, we'll have Tess from the North Central Catchment Management Authority. She's just going to bring up her presentation. A bit about Tessa. She has been the Regional Land Care Coordinator for the last eight years, which is a pretty impressive feat given the turnover in the CMA at times. Hi, Danny, you've done well, you've done very well. She is, was the winner, of course, of the 2021 Steadfast Young Landcare Leadership Award at the uh, National Awards. She's always focused on the big picture. She's fostered a lot of partnerships and just on a personal Note with Connecting Country as well, we have worked a lot with Tessa over the years and she's been wonderful in supporting our Landcare Network and our facilitator, so huge thank you Tessa and welcome and a fun fact was she once did a lobotomy on a hammerhead shark when she worked at the Melbourne Aquarium. Thanks Ivan. Yeah, so for the last decade I've stood up here and said to you, I'm the Regional Landcare Coordinator at North Central CMA, which I'm no longer. I am a project manager working in riparian team, but yeah, I've spent the last eight to ten years in front of you all as Landcare Coordinator, so very excited to be here tonight. 
Climate ready reveg is something that, yeah, like Sasha said, it's something that we're probably doing that we just don't identify that we're doing in, in so many words. So I'll go through a bit about the things that we're currently working on that we hope to share with you and, and that's, that's our primary function is, is whatever we're doing, we're going to share it out. So the CMA is committed to climate change. We have a climate change strategy and basically the, the wording that we use internally is that we will embed climate change and consider climate change in all that we do. And that's all the way from the top, the strategy and the planning work that we do, delivery of the on-ground works that we implement, supporting landholders and land care to try and mitigate the effects of climate change. The engagement that we do, so coming to evenings like tonight and previously a few years ago, we spent a great deal of time in Castlemaine at the other church across the road doing the uh, whole farm planning and activities with landholders about carbon farming and a whole bunch of initiatives at the time that the federal government were happy to fund. And we also work on our carbon footprint as well as an organisation. That's really vital. We have a target to be net zero by 2030. We cover 13% of the state, so someone's in Swan Hill while someone's in Dalesford. So yeah, we do a huge amount of driving. But the Climate Ready Reveg project was something that I wrote a couple of years ago now, and it was exactly what tonight is about. It was to address the need for people who wanted more information and this thirst for understanding about, well, what do we do and are we doing it right and how do we monitor it? So. At the beginning, it was just supposed to be another resource that mirrored the soils guides and the weeds guide, and it was the next step in that series of resources that I developed over the years. And it very quickly did not become that. We realised very quickly how nuanced this needed to be, how complex this space is, how many questions needed to be answered. There wasn't just a simple put-together guide that we could put out. So, yeah, we have spoken at length with Sasha, so that entire presentation, Sasha has probably reiterated that to us about five times. And yeah, we're still learning. So that's, I guess, my first take-home message is that we are learning this along the way with, with everybody else. We've been out with Bonnie. We went to Nadu Hills and we saw that dieback that we were speaking about, the stringy barks and the grey box that just got smashed in heat waves and those trees are, are gone. So it was, you know, things like that are a huge eye-opener and working with our partners to understand what is going on in the landscape is, is really, really vital to understand what kind of actions we can take to mitigate some of these things in the way that we're working. So yeah, the experimental work going on at the Climate Future Plots at Nardo Hills is something we're watching really closely. And the provenance mixing is something that we're gonna start doing. So you can sit back and worry about the next Kudamundra Waddle or the next thing that we're gonna introduce. But I think a bigger worry is doing nothing and not taking a step. So we're going to start doing this work with the provenance mixing. But yeah, as it's already reiterated tonight, the bottleneck is the seed source and the nursery is being able to supply us and tell us what seed has been used in the plants that have been grown. And we've visited nurseries the whole way across North Central CMA. And that's the common thread is them figuring out where their seed has come from, growing plants, and then providing them to us and that data coming along for the ride. Not easy. So the first action that we took quite recently on the back of not just producing this simple little guide and it turning into a bit of a beast of a project was that we started a regional conversation. So we had a forum similar to this in September 
And yeah, about 60 people turned up. Um, we had a whole bunch of presenters and it was really, yeah, that initial step and opportunity in saying, yeah, where are we at with this conversation? Who's doing what? And what are the opportunities for us to work together? So these are the presenters that were there on the day. If you were there, Dan Frost from Seating Victoria had quite poignant remarks about pretty much the question that got raised earlier about, well, who's supporting the seed bank? Who is supporting us? Because we are not going to meet the targets that need to be met across Victoria with the current availability and coordination of seed and resource sharing. It's just not there, as Sasha said, that, that connectivity between seed providers in Victoria. But Melinda Pickup from Greening Australia, she's a lady that we've continued to work with since this forum, and I'll touch on that now. The priorities for the attendees was really important, the feedback about what came out of that online conversation. Leadership is lacking, so this is something that we would love for the government to pick up and give us some guidance on and not approach it at a Landcare Network level or at a CMA level. We, we really want to approach this as Victoria and do something together. So working together is yeah, really vital. Yeah, climate adjusted seed areas is, production area is a huge opportunity. So for any of you budding land carers out there, or you've got a plot that you're willing to do something, that would be amazing. Knowledge sharing at seed production areas are yeah, a huge focus for JARA and that's something we're seeing them implement in the sites where we work together on the Colobin River and um, the Tellerick Creek in particular. And funding for reveg projects, not just reveg, but yeah, things like sourcing seed and monitoring. We definitely fall down on funding monitoring and actually figuring out what is going on with the plants that we do put in the ground. So from that, we kept in touch with Melinda and we, yeah, we're going to get aridity models similar to the, the exactly what Sasha was just describing before about that 2040, 2070, 2090 climate analogues. We're going to get that work done for North Central CMA based on subcatchments. So this is an example of how it was done at Melbourne Water. This is probably Sasha's work. But yeah, so basically Melinda will produce a baseline aridity map for our catchment. And they're the <coughs> aridity parameters, as you can see there. And then this is the percentage change in aridity over a period of 28 years. And it's all based on the annual heat moisture index. So Melinda explained this to mean that over in like Werribee, you can, you know, it's really dry and average, but that's not where the aridity change percentage is causing the most risk for the revegetation you're going to put in. It's up here in the Yarra Ranges and the Dandenongs and those areas where the aridity, the change in aridity is going to be extreme. So we're going to get this done for North Central and you could take a punt that the upper catchment is going to experience huge waves of aridity change. So that's one factor. Obviously, you know, the lower rainfall, the soil, the localised climate around a particular area influences the ability for your reveg to survive. But yeah, this is a big ticket item going forward and where we're going to land uh, in North Central. So we will have aridity modelling by the end of the year. The next part of piece of this climate reveg work is putting a toolbox of resources together. There's no one-stop shop that enables you to pick anything up and, and really work through what might be useful in getting advice and guidance. So. We thought we'd take a lead on producing a toolbox of resources. Um, as I said, not 
creating a whole new resource that doesn't necessarily need to be there, but pulling all of the tools together that might be useful for us when we're trying to design reveg projects going forward. So internally, we had a discussion about, well, what do we currently do? And there's a huge sway of differences across the way that we, we deliver projects internally at the CMA. People prefer direct seeding, others prefer tube stock, people want to mix, there's seed balls coming in as a way of undertaking reveg. As we heard, people prefer spring, some prefer autumn to do their planting in, and other people want to do a huge amount of expensive guarding on a smaller amount of reveg rather than doing the swathes of reveg and having them at risk of failing. So there's a whole bunch of different things going on, and we yeah, totally acknowledge that. It will be different approaches no matter where you are in the catchment and what characteristics your site have. So it is really important to be flexible and adaptable. And that's maybe where something like the climate future plots as a research tool is, is quite sort of rigid and not as flexible for the everyday person to pick up and just roll out. So practically, what are we doing right now? What's happening out on the ground? This is poor Tilden Landcare's site, which I know many of you have the exact same situation going on. Roos are just smashing everybody's reveg. So this has just been literally laid on by a whole mob of kangaroos. They didn't even pull the plants out. They just sat on everything. So yeah, really intensive guarding, really expensive guarding. I'm not telling you the number, but the per guard costs that we're gonna to have to start introducing for Roos and to protect against deer that Melbourne Water are sending up our way. That's where we're heading. We need these plants to start surviving as, as best we can. There's no point doing anything if it's not going to see its first year out. And this is Damien Cook, of course. He's doing a bunch of exclusion plots. So this is another way we're protecting reveg, not just terrestrial, but our wetland threatened species. Carp and ducks do a huge amount of damage to anything we try and put into our waterways. So this has worked really well. It's really simple, it's cheap, it's just a wire cage. But yeah, that get, got some Senequio plants up and going, a threatened species in the Gumbau Forest. So dealing with hot and dry conditions that we have been facing when it hasn't been flooding, it, it's the stock standard of what you've all sort of heard about already today. But yeah, planting less densely and to increase survival rates is an, is an avenue that I'm certainly taking in the two projects that I manage in riparian areas. And planting when things are favourable. That's not always something as a CMA we have the luxury of doing when the investor tells us, please do this by June 30. But that's something we're going to have to start really pushing back on and it, perhaps not planning out reveg in every year of a four-year funding cycle. Some other things which I'm glad Sasha touched on because I had it in this slide and I was like, oh, if you say something different, this will be a nightmare. So, yeah, looking at the species range, long stem planting, something we haven't done yet, but we're going to start considering that. Climate adjusted provenancing and then potentially looking at actually doing some climate future plots, but we know how hard Bonnie's work doing hers, so we might just leave that to her. And I just wanted to finish with some examples of other types of things we've been doing to protect our reveg and really try and get some of this stuff, particularly threatened species that are really vulnerable, established. So again, this is up in the Kerrang Ramsar wetlands, protecting it largely from ducks. They really like wrecking our stuff. This is a huge exclusion plot that's up in Reedbed Swamp in the Guttrum Forest off the Murray River. You know, the ducks can't get in, but then they get on top. Oh, it's very annoying. But it worked really well. So a whole bunch of threatened wetland species survived and thrived in there. And after the October flooding, 
receded in what felt like March. The team went back in and removed this netting and yeah, there was a whole bunch of recruitment going on under this exclusion plot. So you wish you could do more of it, but there's little patches is a whole heap of hope. And this is the, the guarding that you'll start seeing pop up along the Colobin and the Tullaroop. This is the path we're heading down. So what's next for us? We'll, we'll get that work done for, from Melinda from Greening Australia and we'll have the modelling and the mapping for the region. It also includes a layer of information about, you know, we haven't picked a number, but say the top 15 species that collectively we all use for reevage, and then it will have those seed sourcing suggestions about the climate analogues and the areas that we should go and get our seed from for the really common species that we're revegging with. So we'll have all that available to you at some point in time. We really need a way of, of monitoring. There's no sort of collective agreement about the way that we monitor our revegetation. So that's something particularly on climate reveg sites that we're really keen to develop. The toolkit will become available. The project that Nicole and I work on is also going to do some trials of climate adjusted reveg and practicing what we preach. We, we really haven't started down that path in a dedicated way yet. So we'll be doing some climate adjusted provenancing in the next financial year. And yeah, when we've got some practical experience, we'll probably come back and share that with you a bit further in some of the more sort of structured trials that we're about to start doing. So thanks for having me. <laughs> thanks very much, Tess. That was wonderful. It's good to see you, the CMA, uh, looking at a variety of options, and it'd be certainly good to stay in touch and hear more about them in the future, Tess. Thank you. We are now going to turn our three very big brains into a super brain and set up a little panel down the front for the three presenters. So if you could just pop back uh, to the front. Guys, we're going to just do some questions for you. I think the way we might run it is we'll just ask for questions from the audience. And if you've got someone in particular that you want to ask the question to, just let us know. Otherwise, you can throw the question out to the panel and we'll see who bites first and wants to answer the question. Yeah, I'll grab a seat. Thank you. So, yeah, firstly, are there any questions from any of the presentations or anything you're dying to know or have some answers you'd like on any of your projects, fire away. So the first question was for Ollie from Jara and it was to do with the cultural protocols or the cultural appropriateness of moving provenances between different indigenous landscapes and what the Jara people thought of that and also introducing species from other parts of Australia or other parts of the world. Great question. I was going to mention it up here because it was something I didn't touch on in the presentation, but I asked the same question of our knowledge advisory group when we were developing our climate change strategy, and there's mixed views. Some Jara would see taking seed from elsewhere as culturally inappropriate. The, the right seed for that bit of country should come from that bit of country, and taking it from someone else's country, there's issues with cultural protocols. There's other Jara people might see it differently and, and be open to it if it's something that could build resilience. But I think broadly, yeah, I, w I wouldn't say Jara, as the corporation, is against climate provenancing or, or having those discussions. I think it's important. But our priority would be that the first things we should be 
doing to build resilience to climate change is to be getting Jara back in the landscape, practicing culture, bringing cool burns at the right time, managing our landscapes so that we can return landscapes to more culturally recognisable structure, which is much more open grassy woodland, whether, whether you look at the EBCs or historical records or, or Jara's story about the landscape across central Victoria was that there was much bigger trees, grass, a lot of kangaroo grass or other grasses in the understory. We don't have that. We've got highly modified landscapes, forests, areas that are now getting impacted by climate change. I think Jara's perspective broadly would be that there's a lot to do before necessarily we start trying to do some of these other things that are potentially playing a bit of God. But I think we're still open to the conversation and, and understanding as the science develops to have a clearer perspective. But I, I think you're right that anything like this requires probably deeper engagement with traditional owners than has been done. Yeah, so I think that's probably needed. And yeah, Jara's really open to having that conversation. But we also we need to have other traditional owners in the room when we're talking about that as well. Excellent, thanks for that. Any further questions? Someone then asked about the cool burning techniques that Aboriginal people use and have used for millennia on this continent to manage forests and to reduce the risk of extreme bushfires. And it's something that us as the colonial beings that we are, are only just cluing in on. So for those of you listening from overseas, Australia does what we call control burns, which reduces the fuel load in our forests. But actually, the Indigenous understanding of what we do is that we burn much too intensely and it actually does damage to the ecosystems. It kills animals, it burns the forest floor too harshly and some plants and seeds don't recover from that. And so Indigenous people are really trying to advocate for people to adopt Indigenous-led cool burns or cultural burns, which is burns done with a lot more knowledge of the ecosystems. They're done in really specific ways, targeting specific plants and done at a lot lower temperature and there's much less harm to the local ecosystems when this method is used and it is slowly being adopted across Australia and it's a topic of great interest. The intention is to bring cool fire across the landscape whether it's on private or public land but at the moment JARA has to work within the regulatory frameworks. Fire is huge risk and so there's large insurance sort of requirements to be practising burning off, whether it's cultural fire or prescribed burning. So at the moment, the only fire we can really do is on public land because it sort of fits under DECA or the departments or Parks Victoria's sort of, yeah, insurance, unless it's JARA-owned land or potentially partnerships with others like Bush Heritage or, or some of the other NGOs or, or the CMA potentially where that can be sort of covered in the short term. Ultimately, we'd like to get to have that become available as, a, as some kind of service so that everyone can start to heal country with, with JARA sort of leadership as well. Yeah, so we have a women's fire group and I think there's other women traditional owners from other groups that are working together on developing that practice. There's key roles, I think it's not for me to say, but for men and women in managing different parts of country, but we do have yeah women out on the burns that we do now and it's really important for us. 
what we find is that there's been decades of research into cultural burning across Australia. It's only more in the last decade probably coming to Victoria, but JAR are a leader in implementing Cool Fire and we're developing with all that work really strong and rigorous monitoring programs that go alongside any any activities and we try to integrate Western science with that cultural knowledge and that's really important so that JARA can demonstrate that what they do you know has tangible measurable benefits as well. JARA doesn't need to prove that fire is good for country they know that but we understand that you know funding bodies or others need to see that that other evidence and so we do try and integrate and that we can get better outcomes when you're integrating different knowledge as well. Great, thank you. Any further questions? Laurie, you had a question? I don't actually know exactly what this question is, but it sounds like it was something to do with how much research is being done and what's the body of knowledge about some of the plants that we have in our landscapes and what will happen to them. It's a good question and I don't really know the answer. I mean, I think eucalypts have been studied quite a lot, mostly because that's where a lot of our pulp and paper comes from. So they're worried about <laughs> the longevity of that resource. I think shrubs are certainly important because you know a lot of species require shrubs, a lot of bird species. It's certainly true that a lot of the smaller things, grasses, they have a shorter life cycle, so possibly the turnover rates lot greater so maybe they'll be able to adapt a lot quicker but the truth of the matter is we don't really know so I would I would personally would say plant everything with the mind to boost genetic diversity as much as possible and going back to the more the traditional owner question I think from my understanding the uh, there's a right way right plant right way conference recently and my understanding from that was that we should ask the traditional owners where we're getting our provenances from, if that's okay with them to take that seed, and equally where we're planting it, we should ask the traditional owners if it's okay to introduce that to the local area. That was my understanding. Again, I'm not sure what the question was here, but it sounds like it was something to do with the value of soils and using our revegetation projects as carbon sinks or carbon banks to help mitigate climate change. Yeah, so so soil health is, is one of the key functions for our riparian or any vegetation to survive. So yeah, that's kind of the foundation and building block for this whole thing of, of carbon sinking into the soils so yeah whatever you're doing in increasing biomass and yeah whether you're in ag and you, and you need to you know keep cover crops across your landscape for the whole of the year or, or whether you're in a bush setting and you just need to increase you know herbs and forbs and other things that are going on like yeah as I think Sasha and Ollie have both been saying that the more diversity you can have genetically and biodiversity and coverage of your soil that that's where we're at the aridity mapping is showing us that things are going to sort of go off the scale and we're already seeing massive wipeouts in ag sectors and, and changes in the food and fibre plants that we rely on and their resilience to climate change and it's largely to do with yeah the impact of soil health and soil biota being able to sustain those plants. It sounds like this question comes back to 
the difficulty of working out whether or not to plant for climate change and the risks of introducing the species that are not from this specific area. And both Sasha and Ollie answer it. Yeah, <laughs> I feel a bit between the rock and the hard place. <laughs> I mean, potentially it depends what the functional attributes that plant has. What function does that plant provide that the species that may not be here in the future provide at the moment? Are they the same functions? If they are, and if it has a similar life cycle, then maybe it can fill that, what they call a niche in the landscape. So I would bring it back to asking what's the function of that plant, what does it provide to the landscape and are the plants that we're going to lose, are we going to lose that functionality in the landscape if we don't replace it? Just some yeah, real world examples of that. If you go down to Logenburg or Mount Franklin, you know, with all the radiata pine that covers the volcano, uh, for Jara, going to that site, it's a really deeply spiritual and culturally important place with a lot of story behind it, but it's covered in an, a European, you know, tree species. But there are varying views about what to do with it and, and how to manage or remove it or replace it with, with whatever else we want to put back. You know, as is widely known, like the cockies love the, the radiata pine. So if you just go and you know, remove all them at once, well, they've lost that food source in that local area and it's going to take time to return whatever it is, she-oaks or, or mixed species planting. So there are, you know, it's the the function of different species, which Sasha was talking about, is really important for Jarrah as well. And another example, you know, I've heard varying views and this one will be controversial, is a, a, a long-term goal for Jarrah is to return Galgal dingo to country to be widely you know, ranging across the landscape again, you know, that's controversial in itself. But in, in the absence of dingo, well, they're, they're foxes. They are fitting some kind of niche. They're also hugely harmful to native biodiversity, but they are playing some predator function, which has some, probably some positive benefits. And I've heard that from Jara as well. So it's not always clear cut in terms of these these difficult questions. I'm not an ecologist, so, but yeah, I, I would say from, from talking to Jara about questions regarding animal, plant and, and people interaction is that, and, and how climate's impacting different animal populations is that, yeah, Jara often will say, it's all messed up. It's things aren't happening how they should, whether it's reproduction of certain animals or, or, or plant, germination of plants. And so, Jara know that something's not right and they have yeah deep understanding and, and can sense and feel that but yeah we, we yeah it, we need to do more monitoring and we need Jara to be involved in that monitoring as well so it is culturally appropriate I probably couldn't say anything more specific but maybe others want to animals are really important for pollination moving seed around in their own right I would say it's really important to monitor not only the plants you put in, but also the animals which are using it. Birds are the obvious example, but 
I've monitored beetles, lizards, snakes. So looking at the whole suite of animals using these areas is also really important. So we have a better idea about the animals in the landscape and how we can ideally connect remnant areas up to revegetated and other remnant areas so we have connection throughout the landscape so animals can move and disperse. That way their genetics is boosted. I think this question was a lovely one, which was where do you see hope in the face of you know what we're looking at in terms of what's going to happen with climate change? How do the three people up the front of the room find hope? Well, fortunately, I went to a presentation with Chris Aros last night, so I'll just ad-lib exactly what he said. And his property is in, in Wangaratta, just outside Wang, and it's exactly what Sasha just described. It's on the edge of the Warby Ranges, and then that's bordered by the Ovens River. So everyone knows Chris Aros, don't they? I've just said that as though that's a given, but yeah, bird guru. And so Chris was talking about the observation on his property through yeah through the last five years and 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 the farmland that surrounds it so he's got this really good sample of like completely altered farmland and then this sort of restored on the edge of remnant veg and yeah the the pockets of habitat that his property enables is like is the fringe and and i guess it's sort of what we're talking about now is that these animals can survive, but they're just hanging on. So yeah, these specialists, he's got a whole bunch of species that pretty much don't exist for the most part to the west of his, well, east of his property when, as soon as you're in the farmland and he's just his, you know, 200 acres is protecting and supporting a huge volume of bird life in particular. So it just, yeah, it was so inspiring to just hear that, you know, one property is, is doing all of this and producing a whole heap of turquoise parrots and he's got all these artificial hollows that are working and he's monitoring and he's, you know, he can really explain and promote that this is working in, in a farming and setting. But one thing that he found as well was that the specialists particularly the ground foraging specialists were, were literally only on his farm because every single one of his neighbours cleans up and clears and as we know woody debris and all of that stuff is is taken up and gone so yeah the, the upside down country and the things that messed up it's still happening and I'll say it a lot calmer than Chris did but yeah it's quite obviously challenging to see in what we all do that you know roadsides are still being changed and you know people are taking out firewood and phalaris are still growing we're complete we're still altering the systems that these species rely on which is yeah which is really challenging because so many of these birds are, are just hanging on into these fringing areas but the take-home message which was very exciting was that his son lifted up just a tile like a roof tile which connecting country put out in their reptile monitoring programs and Chris's property became only the fourth site in Victoria to ever have this special frog species that has orange flanks and I don't know what it's called but it's a really important frog but his 10 year old son found that so you know things are always there and we just don't know and it's so exciting so yeah that was a huge takeaway from last night which was great I think for me, I didn't talk about it, but JARA have identified, I think, seven key priority food and fibre plants, um, which includes things like kangaroo grass, murnong, vanilla lilies, chocolate lilies, a bunch of other tubers. That's just the sort of ground cover plants. There's also some really important tree species that are missing in the landscape, in many parts of the landscape. And so I think 
yeah, there's a great opportunity for, for all of us to start trying to bring back some of the species that have been removed. And I think that's will build resilience and yeah, provide food and fibre, whether it's for yourselves or, or it's for Jara or, or for it's for other animals. I think it's yeah, really important and a great opportunity. So that gives me hope. I'd also say that having more traditional owner knowledge coming into this space, not just Western science knowledge, but traditional owner knowledge and collaborations in that space can really make a difference to the way we do things. I mean, even what species we plant and where. And I would also generally say that small community groups like this which are trying to make a difference, make changes, recognise that past farming practices weren't the best and that we need to change them. All of that gives me hope. I suppose land care gives me a great deal of hope and has done for a long time. So yeah, again, this is what, this is what matters, us having these conversations and you know, being with like-minded people that you know that the work that you're doing, be it on your parcel of public reserve or you know just trying to get your street trees the right tree or whatever it might be you might be you know doing your big farming planning and and changing your farming practices or whatever it is yeah sharing your knowledge with others and being in events like this and just keeping the conversation going about what is going on to really bring people along with you and share and learn from each other that's yeah that's what I find to be yes yeah, super inspiring and and gives me yeah so much hope that we're no one's working in isolation, which I think is really important in this space. Thanks for listening today. That was the live event hosted by Connecting Country called Revegetation Success in a Changing Climate. The speakers were Sasha Jelinek from the University of Melbourne and Melbourne Water, Ollie Murray, the project manager at JARA, and Tess Greaves from the North Central Catchment Management Authority. There will be links and notes about the show on the episode page on the website. Don't forget to get your saltgrass ethical t-shirts, hoodies, stickers, posters, puzzles and more at our merch shop. You can go to saltgrasspodcast.com and click on merch to find all the designs. For those of you listening on the radio, please note that you can listen to all episodes of Saltgrass on your preferred podcasting app or at saltgrasspodcast.com. You can follow us on Facebook and Instagram. I'm not doing much on Substack, but I am on Substack. And you can subscribe to our email list to get reminders and updates about the show. Again, go to saltgrasspodcast.com and click on contacts for that. This program was made possible with support from Main FM and the Community Broadcasting Foundation. Find out more at cbf.org.au. My name is Ali Hanley. Thanks for listening. Salt. 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 Yeah. Salt. Salt of the earth people. Grassroots change. Salt grass. Listen to all episodes of Salt Grass on your podcast app or at saltgrasspodcast.com.